It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Here's a nod to the past, the great Las Vegas coffee shop giveaway. And here's the story. Las Vegas developer Jade Dapper wants a good old-fashioned 24 diner reminiscent of diners he used to eat at as a kid here. Late last year, he started a contest, the great Las Vegas coffee shop giveaway. He'll give a completely built-out diner in the Huntridge neighborhood of Las Vegas to the winner. So he received more than 90 submissions. He narrowed it down to six finalists, and those finalists are each spending a two-day period popping up at the Vegas Test Kitchen, testing their concepts on the public. Then they are each judged by a panel of judges who will narrow it down to one winner. My guest, Mallory Gott, is one of the finalists who, along with her partner, Chef Aaron Lee from Winnie and Ethel's Downtown Diner, and the concept is based on a 1940s diner offering all the classics for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mallory and the chef are May 6th and 7th for their pop-ups at the Vegas Test Kitchen. For more on the contest, go to LasVegasCoffeeShopContest.com and you can follow Mallory on Instagram at MalloryGott, that's G-O-T-T, and at Winnie and Ethel's. And you can make reservations for May 6th and 7th at WinnieAndEthel'sPopUp.Eventbrite.com. And Mallory, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. So outside of our area that we have a lot of listeners who are not familiar with that particular part of town that the diner will mm-hmm. be built, can you give us a little background about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when people think of vintage Las Vegas, what often comes to mind, and rightfully so, is the 1950s and 60s, the Rat Pack era, the time that everybody thinks of as really classic Las Vegas history. But as it turns out, Las Vegas is older than that. And some of the earliest establishments were actually built in the 1940s, one of which is still standing today, and that is the Hunt Ridge Theater, which opened on October 10th, 1944. So the area surrounding that theater, which is a mix today of residential homes and businesses, but at the in the 1940s was what became the Hunt Ridge neighborhood. And it's near what people know as downtown Las Vegas, which is the Fremont Street Experience, the Arts District, which has really had a re, um, really a resurgence in the last five years. It's very near both of those areas, but it is its own unique area in its own right, built in the 1940s and now having its own renaissance in 2022. I know you are part of the team. Chef Lee is the other part. How did you, we'll get into the division of labor in a minute, but how did the two of you meet (laughs) and eventually become partners in this venture? Well, we are partners in more ways than one. So Chef Lee is also my fiance. So we actually met because I used to and still do go into another really iconic restaurant here in Las Vegas, especially amongst the locals population, which is called Esther's Kitchen, which is located in the Arts District, so an adjacent neighborhood. And uh, and Chef Lee, Aaron, is actually still a sous chef there today and has been for several years. So I would go in, I would sit, I would have uh, dinner usually at the bar and I would see him and I thought he was really handsome. And I did that for about two years looking from a distance. Uh, and then finally one night I went in and uh, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to find this guy. And so I did a thing that you're never supposed to do, which is uh, look through the restaurant's Instagram page. And I found him and I sent him a message and I said, hey, I have seen you at Esther's for a really long time. Do you think you'd want to grab coffee sometime? And he 
graciously replied the next day and said yes. And uh, so we've been together ever since. And prior to the contest being announced, actually, um, so last fall, about October of 2021, he and I had already started talking about coming up with a concept together, what we would do, what that would look like. And it, truth, truth, my hand to good, you know, to God, um, we were talking about doing a vintage diner. And so when this opportunity presented itself in December, I saw it, I was on a trip, actually out of town. I saw a lot, you know, a headline in one of my online news feeds and I sent it to Aaron and I said, I, I think we got to throw our hat in the ring for this. So Great we story. became partners and then we became business partners and, uh, and that's all happened in the past, what, probably 18 months. All right. Things happen fast and for a reason. I guess so. Yeah, just absolutely. To, just to follow up, though, did he remember you from seeing you whenever you'd come in? So he says no. Uh, I think <laughs> a bunch of malarkey. I choose to believe that. And he's he, he's actually looking at me from a little adjacent area in the in the office right now, making a face like. But uh, whether he did or didn't, once he saw me one on one, he was smitten. He booked the second day before the first one was even over. So I can say that. Confidence was high immediately. Evidently. No, that's great. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you, you go to into this project and a diner, it's funny, you said in the, in the beginning, everybody thinks of a diner in Las Vegas from that golden era of the 50s and into the 60s. Mm-hmm. But in the 40s, a 40s diner is completely different than a 50s diner that we all think about even outside of Las Vegas. So how did you and the chef get together and figure out and and how did you divide the the labor? Because your background obviously is in coffee rather than because you've been going every day seeing the chef having coffee. So your background is in coffee, not in food, and his is in food. But your your background is in design. So how did yes. how did this all work out? And and who contributed what? Yeah. So it has you know to say the cliche that people say it has been a team effort but in terms of division of labor where we both started were our conceptions of what a 1940s diner would look like before we ever did a, a lick of research right so we started with from his side what a menu could look like and from my side what my brain said a 1940s diner could look like we sketched out so to speak uh, me literally him writing down you know menu items what we thought that would be and then we took that and did a lot of research looking at what actual vintage menus looked like not only from a conceptual standpoint but also from how they described the food what types of menu items were on them um, how they were laid out you know and then in addition we looked at a lot of things to try to get a sense of what the space itself should look like if it was going to be authentic to that era so from the standpoint of the food, you know, the great news was uh, several of the things that Aaron came up with were right in line with the concept, but then he also got to kind of be reminded of some other things, some simple things that as much in the description as as, as in the preparation that you would have found on a 1940s diner menu. And then from my standpoint, I got to look at like really what was going on. And, and this is great because we still have this information available. How did advertisements look for the Hunt Ridge Theater in the 1940s? How did advertisements look for homes that were built for the in the Hunt Ridge neighborhoods? What did the interiors of spaces in Las Vegas and other parts of the country look like? And thank goodness, the internet is a wealth of information. So that allowed us to really take what we thought was accurate and then truly verify it and make adjustments to bring it as much in line as we could with what truly would have been going on in that period of time. Did you guys look at any 1940 movies? 
on Turner Classic Movies to get a sense of what a, a 40s diner would look like and even the menus that are in the films? Yeah, so we actually, so I am a bit of a, a dork and I watched some of those anyway. Um, <laughs> so I will say yes, but it wasn't like an, a labor of additional, you know, research. It was kind of just like, oh, what do I normally, you know, what do I normally take a look at? And how do I, like, what do I see that I can pull from here? We also took a look at like things that, so in the Hunt Bridge Theater, it was an active movie theater. That was the original uh, use for that space. And so we took a look at like, what were the earliest movies that they screened in there? You know, what was the first movie that played at the Hunt Ridge Theater? It was a movie called Hello Neighbor. And, you know, when we looked at things like who who was involved in the theater's later ownership. So for example, Irene Dunn didn't become one of the partial owners until the 50s, but she was a star before she became a partial owner. So to look at, you know, what kind of things she would have done and how she was depicted in movies and films maybe in the late forties, more than in the early to mid forties, but yeah, just a lot of different places where we could draw inspiration and verify that what we thought was accurate was in fact, you know, a real portrayal of, of what people would have seen. Of course, we infuse a few things into the menu and we will infuse a few things if we went into the physical space that are not from the 1940s. We wanted to have a milkshake part of our menu because, you know, a milkshake malt counter is very 1940s drugstore or soda shop. But we've got a couple that are beyond just your basic vanilla chocolate strawberry. We've got some things that we want to do with like Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Reese's Puffs, you know, Reese's Puff cereal. So there is definitely what we like to call the occasional delightful twist. But wherever possible, we have stayed as true to concept as we think we can get. And in your conception of the physical layout, will there be both booths and stools by the counter? Absolutely. Yeah. So for me growing up, one of the places that I went to a lot as a kid when I in Northern Illinois, suburban Chicago was this really, really awesome donut shop actually called Country Donuts. And it was a long standing donut shop. It had been in our community for a very long time. Um, and they had the big iconic windows that you could look through from the outside. They actually didn't have any booth or table seating. They just had like a swizzle S countertop with all the um, stools that were bolted to the ground. And that's where you would roll up. I mean, I remember being as young as probably five, rolling up there to get a carton of milk and a couple of donuts with my mom or my dad or my sisters, whoever, you know, whoever was there that morning. And so we're absolutely, we want to bring in the coffee shop counter, the diner counter into the space. We want to put a heavy emphasis on booths, but then we also want to make sure that we have adjustable seating, you know, tables that can be moved apart, pushed together, et cetera. And that's where it starts to get into the play on the materials. So if we're lucky enough to take home the top prize, one of the things we also talked about from a spatial perspective, where cost will permit is trying to use as many materials as would have actually been available in the, in the mid 1940s. And what people don't often necessarily think about is that at that time, we were still in the midst and, and wrapping up World War II. So we had new materials emerging, um, new plastics, new steels, and so on and so forth. But it wasn't this giant boon of that that you see in the 1950s. That's really when all of those things started to become mainstream. People came home from the war, and that's where designers were challenged, actually. There were a, a number of national design contests to show people how you could use these newfangled materials in day-to-day design because there was just such a, such a, a massive amount of them um, once the war production effort stopped. So it'll be an interesting blend if we have the chance to try to use things that were readily available, you know, simple wood, um, simple metal, simple plastic, but really make it look homey, comfortable, and then of course, keep the price tag uh, at such a place where we don't make a beautiful diner that 
we have to charge a million dollars for a milkshake to eat at. And a cover so. <laughs> charge too, yes. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. In your research, and it sounds like you're, you did a lot of good research, did you also come across anybody from that era that you could talk to and get a sense of the feel of going to a diner during that time? So the great news is that for me, I'm very fortunate that both of my father's parents are still alive. And so they were born in the, uh, my grandpa was born in 1929. My grandma was born in 1931. So they both were alive and in their, you know, young teen, mid teen years, but definitely had a keen sense of what was going on in the diner culture in the mid 1940s. Um, and so, yeah, so I drew a lot on what they shared with me. And um, what was really great was that both of them grew up in smaller towns in central Illinois and northwestern Missouri. Um, and so it was truly not, it was like a middle America classic diner. It wasn't necessarily the New York delicatessen that you might think of or like the Southern Roadhouse at that period, it really, it, it, you know, for me was that kind of, I don't want to say pure because that sounds like other diners weren't pure, but that truly like that central, you know, central United States, small town experience. And so, yeah, what they reaffirmed for us was, you know, it wasn't huge space. It wasn't overly complicated menus. You know, you were keeping things really simple, even the materials, even, and I shouldn't say materials, even the ingredients that were used in the menu items they had to be simple, readily available ingredients because, again, wartime effort, you can't just get everything and anything. Well, right? there, was, so, there, was, there was scarcity at that point. Scarcity. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So you think about things like, you know, one of my my great grandma, Ethel, who is half of the namesake of the restaurant. One of the things that we uh, have on the menu, should we win, would be split pea soup, right? Because that's a very, very basic dish, not expensive to make. If you're growing a victory garden in the 1940s, theoretically, you could grow peas. You don't you don't need to be a special uh, horticulturist to make that happen. So things like that, things like using, you know, really good, but not super fancy ground chuck for burgers. You know, it's not going to be like a Wagyu burger or something. Right. So taking those really, really classic quintessential, very, very good ingredients and making sure that people have the opportunity to see that. While fancy can be excellent, and we certainly embrace that and eat out at great places all the time, Aaron and I do, simple can also be done really, really well. You know, you can make a classic, very, very simple dish with simple ingredients. And if it's done correctly, it'll it'll stick with you as long as that, you know, as long as that gold leafed ice cream sundae would or whatever your depiction of a super high end meal might be. Now, my one suggestion is, and it's more you referenced the deli, and I think mm -hmm. what you should need to add to this to really make it a winner is to also sell egg creams. Oh, you know what? We did look up egg creams. Actually, it's a true story. So when we were doing that menu research, of course, we were we were look, trying to find actual images of vintage menus and egg creams came up on more than one of them. And we were like, what is this egg cream? What Seltzer is and Fox's You Bet Syrup. That's yes. what it is. Yes. And I was like, well, this is very wild and I don't know if anyone <laughs> would enjoy it. But oh, I wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. I object, Your Honor. What do you mean? You uh, wonder if anybody would enjoy it. It's been enjoyed for decades, generations. For decades, right. Come on. Right. Right. So the cool thing is, you know, the, the other way that we've talked about the menu and, and I give Aaron all the credit for this because this is definitely his vision and, and his baby in terms of this part of the project is that he's got it set up in such a way where there are going to be the stalwarts, right? So there are things that you know, just like a diner, right? In the 1940s, they weren't doing seasonal menus necessarily. They weren't changing it all the time. You had your stalwarts and then you have a couple of things, seasonal fruit pie, for example. Peaches are in season at a different time than pumpkins are in season. But he also has come up with 
and we don't have these all the way fleshed out yet, but he's come up with a few different times a year where we can introduce surprise pop-up menus. And so those are intended to be where we might introduce something like an egg cream or where we might introduce, you know, we actually just, just this morning, I was looking back through some old recipes from my family from the 1940s. And um, one that I'd never seen before was a sesame date pie. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I would imagine it's good because everything else my great grandma made was fantastic. But you know, that's something where we might introduce it at like a fall seasonal menu see whether people like it, how they enjoy it. And then of course, if it's a crowd pleaser, we're happy to make it available. Ira, to you. Thank you. Egg cream for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how shy is the chef? Do you think you can coax him into coming over and saying a quick hello on the mic? I think I would normally say yes, but he worked a shift last night and he was, so he's still actively chefing on at Esther's Kitchen, and he closed the restaurant last night. So I don't think he got home until about 2.30. I got you. Fair enough. Um, He is not a shy guy, but he is not an awake guy yet. And that's just... For all those listening, it's uh, it's about ten twenty in the morning here in Las Vegas right now. So Chef Lee is still he, he really gets on firing on all cylinders in about another ninety minutes. I like the way you use the term as a verb, chefing. He was busy chefing yes. last night. Busy chefing, busy chefing last night. Now, That's exactly right. You're handling all the branding and the graphics and all of that as your part of yeah. it. And so tell yeah. us a little bit about G and A. It's a design firm, but what kind of design firm is it? Well, we are an, a boutique experiential design firm. And for folks who- Can you say that three times real fast? Yeah, boutique experiential design firm. Oh, no, I can't. See? <laughs> I can't. I got to practice. Maybe right, you may want to think about a different way to describe boutique it because that's experiential tough. Experiential design firm. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a, yeah, you're right. I need to work on that. I'll have to work on my, uh, my enunciation. All right, challenge accepted. You're going to have to invite me back then All right, to do another episode and see if I can, see if I can- <laughs> meet to meet your uh, the bar the high bar you've set. Thank you. Um, of course, I'm, I love it. I love a good challenge on a Friday. Again, for those listening in the future, yes, it's a Friday exactly. Um, so, so what we do is a combination of different things that are what I believe representative of the entire arc of an experience. So if you think about a restaurant concept, obviously this is what is germane right now. Of course you have the food, but then you also have things like the physical space, the place settings, the way that people are uh, going to walk up and experience the restaurant when they first arrive, how it sounds. So what's, you know, does it make, do you have the right music? Do you have the right Uh, lighting. Also then how does the actual image look when people see it in the various ways that they can interact with it before they ever show up? So one of the things that we talked about with the graphic designer who's working on this particular project with us was looking at that iconic opening advertising flyer from the Hunt Ridge Theater from October, 1944. And not, of course, not directly lifting things out of it, but making sure that it was pulling in elements and inspiration from that. And so When we take a look at any of the client work that we do, we try to identify all of the different experiential touch points that go into creating a brand or an event experience as part of that brand. And then we determine how we want people to feel when they go through that experience. So for Wendy and Ethel's, we talk about feeling like really warm, loving, you know, inviting, just like you're in your grandma's kitchen. We want it to feel simple and we want it to feel classic. And so that helps inform, of course, all of the decisions around the look and feel, but it also helps us inform the experience we have 
moving through the process of putting this entire thing together. We're not going to say we want it to be warm and loving for people, but then do things that are not really fun and enjoyable and warm and inviting for ourselves as we go through media outreach or, you know, the way that we talk about the way that we talk about the concept with the people around us. Our, our own marketing efforts are such that we've engaged providers to help us that we really love, that we would have them in our grandma's kitchen, whether we had business to do with them or not. So, you know, when GNA gets together, whether it's for the Winnie and Ethel's concept or previously the Hopper House of Las Vegas was one of our clients. We've had clients in other parts of the United States, Washington, DC, New York, et cetera. We really start with that concept of how do you want this experience to feel? Give us those key adjectives that if, if you know, you know, when you walk into a house, if that house is your home or not, right? Like you don't have to you know, put down on paper, oh, it has all these elements, you know what you want, but you know, you can walk into a hundred places that have the same thing on paper. And one of them is going to feel like the experience that you want to have. So that's the way GNA approaches our work when we're doing experiential design with our clients. When you're looking at the, all the different aspects of a restaurant or a diner, I think there's one element that a lot of people miss building restaurants and diners. And that is not the design, not the entrance, not the menu, not the food. But when you walk in, are you being welcomed? And invariably, I have gone into restaurants, well-known restaurants, and you're not greeted. Or if you are greeted, when you leave, they don't say, thank you for coming, see you again, or goodbye. And not having that human touch when you leave even always leaves me with a little bit of an empty feeling. I don't know if that's true with everybody, but it seems to me that it doesn't take a lot of effort to say, hey, thank you for coming, see you next time, hope you enjoyed the meal, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying in my uh, a roundabout way, which is really not a roundabout, is that <laughs> you guys have to have some kind of way of when they walk into the diner, assuming that you win and you have this diner, that you're greeted in some way. If it's not someone right there at the entrance, and I understand the way some diners are designed, but somebody from behind the counter yelling, hey, welcome, come on in, like the sushi places do. Welcome, come on in, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, you absolutely are 100% correct. Um, whether it's a diner or any other place where you're bringing your business, it's wonderful to walk in and, and be recognized as someone who has come and made the choice to be in one place versus the umpteen million others that you could choose. And of course, if you, you know, on your way out, if someone isn't able to say, hey, thanks for coming in, have a great day. It's like, well, okay, I, I brought my business here. Like, I, it would be nice to have that extra touch. So can I say with 100% certainty that every single person who would walk into the diner would get the high and goodbye? I would love to promise that, but I guarantee you that soundbite would come back to bite me at some point in the future. <laughs> you know, the one person that wouldn't get greeted would be like flipping a table going, ah, you said. Um, but thinking about it from the perspective that GNA thinks about experiential design, that is 100% one of the areas that we would say yeah, when you walk into your grandma's kitchen, it's warm, loving. Your grandma, you, you don't walk in and like it's 20 minutes before, you know, your grandma or grandpa show up to say hello. You don't leave and they're like somewhere else going, oh, we'll catch you the next time. You know, you walk in and they're there. You, you they walk, you know, you walk out and they're they're waving goodbye from the porch. At least mine always did. They always were waving when we um when we would pull out of their driveway. So to the extent that we can bring that type of feeling into that particular touch point of the restaurant experience, of course, that would be our goal. And that's something that I'm sure any other restaurant owner would likely say is their goal as well. And then the challenge becomes making sure that you find the right people and that you've given them clear direction about like why this is important and why we go out of our way to do it. 
and just stay with them and make sure that that's happening on a consistent basis. So absolutely, I 100% agree. And in addition to the egg creams, should we win, <laughs> we will invite you to come in and we will have a very personalized hello Thank and you. goodbye experience just for you. I appreciate it. Now, do you see this becoming a franchise or do you see it as strictly Las Vegas for now? That's a great question. I I only ask great what, questions. I only ask. I uh, yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I yeah, I should go. What if I ever say? Well, that's a subpar question, but I'll answer it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so what? What Aaron and I have discussed at this or point a do or a do par question since we're in the world yeah. of dining. <laughs> So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what Aaron and I have discussed to this point is first and foremost, making sure that if we have the opportunity to make this diner a reality as winners of this contest, that we do our best to execute this exceptionally well. So for the first realistically 18 to 36 months, you know, of any restaurant endeavor, your sole focus is making sure that you're doing what you need to do on a day in and day out basis to build a really, really loyal, strong customer base to deliver a consistent food experience, a consistent restaurant experience, and to make sure that when people think of your restaurant and your brand, they have an overall very positive and consistent conception of what that looks like. So with that said, we have not discussed it becoming a franchise. I know I can speak for Aaron when I say he is really very, very focused on no matter what a future evolution might look like of this or any other kind of restaurant concept, that he is able to create really exceptionally good food. Um, he's been brought up under some great mentors here in Las Vegas and in other parts of the West Coast who have drilled into him. And thankfully so, the first and most important part of a restaurant is the food experience being excellent and being consistent. And so I would say you know, uh, we don't, we haven't put a cart too far before a horse. We wouldn't rule anything out, certainly, but our job is number one to hopefully win. And then number two, to show the people, the sponsors and and Jay Dapper um, and Dapper companies that they've invested in the right team by delivering an exceptionally, uh, you know, well put together and profitable business in the space we're awarded. So those are our top priorities right now. You mentioned how the restaurant was named after on your side of the family. To be fair, we should do both sides of the family. So give us a little bit of background in a minute on how it was called Winnie and Ethel. Well, it's very nice that you think I should be fair. So I suppose I'll try to live up to that standard. Uh, no. So we, we, as I mentioned, in prior to the contest being announced, Aaron and I had been brainstorming about a concept. And uh, one night, for those who don't live in Las Vegas, this won't necessarily mean much, but we live in the Hunt Ridge neighborhood where this restaurant is potentially going to be located if we win it. And we were on our way home and actually at the corner of Maryland and Charleston, which is right where the Hunt Ridge Theater and the potential restaurant location are going to be, or Hunt Ridge already is. And we were listening to, this is not a joke, a 40s radio station on Sirius XM talking about the restaurant. Not that we do that all the time. We listen to a lot of different sure, genres. Sure. I don't want, yeah, I don't yeah. want to act like, you know, like, oh, we live in the 40s. Stuck in the 40s. Days. Yeah, right. No, not at all. Like, not at all. But this song came on from an artist called Clyde McFadder. And it was just one of those doo-wop songs. And we were, you know, so at that point, I, I jokingly said, well, what if we called it Clyde McFadder's Downtown Diner? You know, like that would be a catchy name and whatever. And so that was the working title for a while. And then when we, the, the coffee shop giveaway contest became a thing and we started working on it, 
we looked at, you know what? We really do want it to feel like our grandma's kitchen. Grandma Winnie was uh, Aaron's mom's mom and and um, she and her family lived up in Daly City outside of San Francisco. Great grandma Ethel was my mom's grandma um, and she lived up in uh, Door County, Wisconsin. Their names made a lot of sense also because the first two letters of those names uh, turn into the acronym WE. And for us, we are part of the community. We want the restaurant to be part of the community. We want the people who hopefully get to visit the restaurant to feel as much like they're in a comfortable, warm, loving environment um, as if they were in their own grandma's kitchen. So that was the uh, the entire kind of evolution of the name from start to finish. And if you ever partner with a chocolate company, it would be Winnie and Ethel M's. That's Ah, yes. Why not? Why not? Well, good good look on the contest. And I'll I'll mention in a second where people can go and get tickets for your pop-up. So I guess that's a great way to end it. Thanks for being on the show. My guest has been Mallory Gott, that's G-O-T-T, one of the finalists along with her partner, Chef Aaron Lee, and Winnie and Ethel's Downtown Diner for the Great Las Vegas Coffee Shop Giveaway. Again, the concept is based on a 1940s diner offering all the classics for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For more on the contest, go to lasvegascoffeeshopcontest.com and you can follow Mallory on Instagram at Mallory Gott and at Winnie and Ethel's. And you can make reservations, as I mentioned before. You can make reservations for their pop-up May 6th and 7th at winnieandethelspopup.eventbrite.com. Mallory, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. Have a wonderful day. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,